This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have a, a special episode. We're going to be discussing the science of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. With us is Rodney E. Rohde, PhD, a uh, distinguished professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program in the College of Health Professions at Texas State University. He holds certifications as a specialist in virology, specialist in microbiology, and a molecular biologist from the American Society for Clinical Pathology. Dr. Rodi has over 30 years of experience as a virologist and clinical laboratory scientist with expert specialization in public health and zoonotic disease. We've invited him for a special bonus episode where we get a chance to engage him in scientific discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's now talk science with Dr. Rohde as he joins us in the race to value. Dr. Rodney Rohde, it is so awesome to be speaking with you today as an alumnus of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at Texas State University. I've got nothing but love for the great work you're doing to advance the medical laboratory profession. Thanks, Eric. It's a great honor to be on the show, and I'm looking forward to talking about everything medical lab and other topics you have today. Well, Dr. Rohde, we're going to get into COVID-19 in a few minutes, but I first wanted to ask you about the clinical laboratory science profession. You know, laboratory professionals perform an estimated 13 billion tests in the United States each year. That means that laboratory testing is the single highest volume medical activity in the lives of Americans. These 13 billion tests help drive approximately two-thirds of all medical decisions made by physicians and other healthcare professionals. There are only 337,800 practicing medical laboratory professions for a population of just over 330 million people in the U.S., and this is a profession that is one of the most underrecognized health professions, but with COVID-19, these unsung professionals are now in the limelight. So I wanted to ask you if you could provide our listeners with a brief overview of the medical laboratory testing profession and why it's so pivotal to helping us win this race to value. And as our nation's healthcare system is moving more towards value-based payment, how do you see clinical laboratories potentially figuring in more prominently in the continuum of, of care by moving away from transactional interactions to approaches that may support more interactive services and proactive population health? Thanks, Eric, for that question. I always, as you know, appreciate the opportunity to share with any audience uh, the importance of the clinical laboratory field. It's also, as you probably know, is often referred to as the medical laboratory profession. So, you know, as you, as you consider this profession, if you're looking into it and things like that, medical laboratory and clinical laboratory are pretty synonymous within the college major, as well as the professional name. And I think I'll start there, Eric. You know, one of the things that 
has always been part of my story is that when I came through Texas State at the time, uh, Southwest Texas State University back in the 80s, I was a microbiology major. And the whole time that I was an undergrad as a microbiology major, I thought I would be working in a hospital laboratory when I graduated. Uh, I was not aware of this major. And that's one of the issues we can talk about a little bit today. So many high schools and junior highs are not aware of the major itself. Uh, most students in those uh, settings are looking at medical school or nursing, perhaps pharmacy and physical therapy, things that you see because people see those in the direct line of patient care. And as you know, we're a bit behind the scenes. I often like to tell people that we're saving lives in the shadows of healthcare because we're not always out front. That's changing a little bit with more people being interactive like myself and other colleagues and students being more outgoing in that sense, but it's still a challenge because we are in the laboratory performing those tests kind of behind the scenes. I often refer to us as the ground crew, uh, like you hear in airports. So, you know, the, the doctor, you can think of as the pilot, uh, the flight attendants might be other healthcare professionals, but the ground crew, Eric, the people who, you know, work on the the plane's engines and the hydraulics and the digital systems and the things that keep you alive in the air. That's the medical laboratory professional. Uh, we're not seen as often, but you better be sure you have a certified or licensed medical laboratory professional taking care of your testing because that's critical, as you know. And we have uh, every level uh, within our profession. So uh, some of the entry doors to our profession are phlebotomist or medical lab technicians, which is the associate's degree. And then as you move into probably the core professional, which is what our program here at Texas State provides is the bachelor's in uh, clinical or medical laboratory science. And then we have many, many uh, specialty master's levels degrees for people to pick up along the way to maybe specialize. For instance, I'm a specialist in microbiology or virology. And then ultimately, which is really exciting in the last couple of years, we have entered in the doctoral level so now we have a DCLS, a Doctorate of Clinical Laboratory Science. There are uh, three programs as of now. There's one at Rutgers, one at Kansas Medical School, and there's one right here in our own state of Texas at UTMB Galveston. So those are the highest level, and those positions we're really excited about with respect to more recognition because those individuals, and we do have graduates now working as DCLS all over the country, they are going to be interactive in doing rounding with physicians and sitting at those tables for not only patient testing interpretation, but also helping select the most appropriate test. And as you know, the world of healthcare has entered into this really complex level of testing from molecular testing to antigenic and, and proteonomics to traditional testing. And so physicians have enough on their plate with all other uh, areas of care that they're dealing with, that it's going to be really helpful, we believe, to have that seat at the table to help do that. And as we move forward in this ongoing pandemic, I think we have a raised visibility on our profession, and that's a good thing, uh, but it's also been a challenging thing. And perhaps that's uh, some things we can talk about today is, is how difficult it has been through this pandemic, because as you know, uh, we were already uh, before this pandemic in kind of a staffing crisis. You mentioned those numbers in that article I wrote, uh, 337,000 that we know of practicing professionals, and there's about 330 million in this country. So those, those ratios aren't great. And so we need to grow our profession. We need to grow our programs. We need to grow congressional and uh, foundational and professional organizational support through scholarships as well as numbers of programs. Most people don't know this, Eric, but Texas is pretty lucky. We have about 13 bachelor's levels programs. We have a lot of associate degree levels up in the 40 and 50. We have a doctorate and we have a few master's programs around the state, but there are states in this country that have zero bachelor's of clinical lab science. So we get students from all over the country. And there are so many uh, areas to talk about in this with respect to difficulty and, and issues around clinical placement for students that kind of limits the numbers we can graduate. One of the things that the medical laboratory professional can do with respect to value-based care is that, as you know, testing really does not discriminate. 
right? So if we have a population of individuals and hopefully a, a very wide population of people that are being tested, we can use laboratory medicine and, and our testing ability to look at issues across all populations, across all ethnicities, across all cultures and ages and genders to try to look at some of those problems around different disparities in health, different social determinants of health for any number of diseases, whether it's diabetes, whether it's particular cancers, whether we're talking about infectious disease-based testing around HIV or HCV or any other number of diseases. When you have quality healthcare testing, quality laboratory medicine testing, and that is being distributed across an equitable platform, then you can really start diving into health care issues around population and community health. So that should really be helpful with respect to looking at incidence and prevalence of, of all different types and numbers of diseases that the United States population has. And remember, we have uh, such a diverse population that's changing daily from all areas of the country uh, that these, these types of testing platforms and mechanisms can be really helpful to try to level that playing field somewhat. Dr. Rode, thank you for that background. I'm really grateful for it. And uh, I'd like to shift our conversation to what Eric mentioned at the start to begin talking about COVID-19. Specifically, I want to ask about the origins of the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and it's the potential deadly virus that leads to COVID-19. And the scientific community is telling us that COVID-19 is a zoonotic disease like the Ebola virus, rabies, Zika virus, or African swine fever, and emerged into the human experience through an intricate, complex biological process known as spillover. And the World Health Organization published its findings recently about the origin of the pandemic earlier in the year and debunked the lab leak theory by saying that an accidental laboratory incident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was extremely unlikely. Although the laboratory had been conducting experiments with bat coronaviruses. And the head of the WHO team has since made public comments following the release of that report and stated that he still thinks the laboratory leak is unlikely. However, there's a possibility that this is not strictly a zoonotic spillover or a laboratory leak. Instead, he thinks that a Wuhan laboratory worker could have been patient zero and have, having been infected by a wild bat while collecting samples. Based on the scientific research that you've seen, is there anything that would lead us to believe that the SARS-CoV-2 virus exhibits laboratory-developed protein spikes that might indicate that this pandemic was not initiated through a spillover event, but instead might indicate a laboratory leak instead? Thanks, Daniel, for that question. It's an important question, uh, certainly one that the population and, and the world needs answered. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be a difficult 100% answer. And so I'll give you my thoughts and, and what I understand about the research and my own professional experience around 30 years of chasing viruses around, not on, around the U.S., but around the country and the, and the world. And most, most of the time, these types of viruses, and you mentioned some of them, rabies, HIV, Ebola, we can throw influenza in there, any number of diseases that we believe come from zoonotic populations, that being animal to man types of transmission, because those are the reservoirs of these viruses. And, and that even plays into vaccination when we talk later about that. So it's very difficult to eradicate a disease when you have a, an animal reservoir, because that virus can find a niche in those populations. But with respect to everything I've read and everything I've listened to, and kind of looking into the details from my own scientific experience, I really do still believe that this SARS-CoV-2 originated from a zoonotic type of event. Uh, and I certainly cannot rule out uh, the Wuhan lab or, you know, one individual that, that may have been working there. there. There's tons of information when you, when you kind of dive into this and start going into the rabbit hole, as you know. And so it's really difficult, you know, to say with 100% certainty uh, but I really have no strong evidence um, in front of me at this time to believe that it's anything else. When you look at the virus itself, and this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but if you look at the virus itself and 
the different protein sequences and the different uh, genetic sequences of the genomic RNA virus. Uh, it really doesn't have any unique signature marks that would kind of identify it as being manipulated in such a way. But again, you know, I'm not a cutting edge genomic scientific researcher, but my understanding, it looks very stable and it looks like something you would see from a spillover event. So that's kind of where I stand on it. And I've, I've made that commentary before. I certainly could be proven wrong as anybody in science. That's what hypothesis testing and, and the things we do around science. We also, um, I think if you look at some of the data, and this is just a little tangent on the question, but you know, some people were kind of concerned about when it entered into the United States. And there have been serological studies done now that looks like it may have been here as early as December, possibly even late November of 2019. Um, so again, some of the time when I'm talking about this with different audiences, including the lay public, is ultimately, I'm not sure at this point what the point is with respect to it, because <laughs> Uh, in, in all honesty and frankness, I think we have the problem before us, and that is dealing with it. Uh, it's here. Certainly, we need to know the origin, and certainly it's important for understanding what happened, but we really have the problem now of containing it. Uh, it's basically a global pandemic, and so now we're trying to devise ways to limit the pathogenicity and the effect it has on different populations. So that's kind of my take on it, and um, I'll be watching for any changes in that. I also think sometimes that it's really difficult to keep secrets. So uh, after 16 months or 18 months, you would think something would have come out where somebody's telling on somebody if there was some type of lie. People will tell me, well, it's, you know, it's the Chinese, perhaps that's not gonna be typical. Again, I can't, I can't really speak to that, uh, but at this point, I really do believe it's a zoonotic type of event. Dr. Rohde, I couldn't agree more that it is important to look at the origins of the virus, but most importantly, in the here and now, you know, how do we get through this global pandemic? And I think the most important question of this interview is really this next question and in this dilemma that we have in our society about whether or not to get the COVID-19 vaccination. As it stands right now, around 164 million people or 49% of the total U.S. population have now been fully vaccinated. Ultimately, with a large portion of the U.S. population still unvaccinated, it seems that the COVID-19 disease is really not going to disappear in the near future. The U.S. will continue to see outbreaks of the virus in communities with low vaccine uptake. Even if people in those under-vaccinated areas rush to get shots, when outbreaks happen, and it still takes about a month for vaccinations to produce strong immunity. And as for the effectiveness of these vaccines, the data seems pretty unequivocal that they are working as intended. Uh, last month, you published an outstanding piece in the conversation discussing how the U.S. is split between the vaccinated and unvaccinated and how the deaths and hospitalizations really reflect this divide. And in that article, you reference a statistic that 99.5% of all the people dying from COVID-19 in the U.S. are unvaccinated, despite the scientifically sound basis for the vaccine and its efficacy in a treatment group of 164 million people. We do still have two Americas that are divided among geographic and political lines when it comes to receiving the vaccine. And you're a virologist and a subject matter expert when it comes to the science behind these vaccines. So I really wanted to ask your opinion about those out there who are still refusing to receive the vaccine. At this point, is there a legitimate scientific basis to refuse the vaccine? And are there any significant health-related concerns that are significant at this point. I mean, is the benefit of these vaccines strong enough to outweigh the extremely rare risk associated with myocarditis or clotting issues that could happen with the mRNA vaccines like Moderna or Pfizer? I am going to speak from kind of a virologist experience, as well as someone who's worked in the area of vaccine preventable diseases, both in the animal and human population over about 30 years. So first of all, let me reference the article you're talking about, just so your audience understands that uh, when, the, uh, when that article was published, it was about a month, maybe a little over a month ago now, 
And so, you know, that 99.5%, I will stand by that uh, for that date it was published. It, it might be a tad off now because some people have brought that up. Certainly, it could have changed a little bit over that time. But the data, the data overwhelmingly still shows that vaccinated populations for this COVID uh, infection are protected, more protected than the unvaccinated. It still shows that most people entering hospitalization and ending up on vents or ending up in the morgue are unvaccinated. Now, let's be clear, because people like to bring this up, are there breakthrough infections in the vaccinated? There are, there are, and this is true of any vaccine. Uh, most vaccines that I'm aware of in the history of man are rarely 100% effective. Uh, both mRNA vaccines as well as the J&J &J vaccine are not 100% effective. We knew that. And so you will see vaccine breakthroughs. But again, what's clear, the overwhelming evidence shows that even in those breakthrough infections, typically you're seeing mild cold-like symptoms, uh, maybe asymptomatic. And so they don't even know they have the infection and they're staying out of hospitals and they're not dying. So that's kind of important to, to kind of put out front. And I think we need to acknowledge that, that we will continue to see breakthrough infections. And now we know through uh, several research studies that even in those breakthrough infections, we'll see some viral shedding, uh, sometimes as high as a unvaccinated person. And that, you know, that will bring us to other questions about trying to be more uh, preventative uh, with respect to mitigation measures and things like that. So we can kind of address that later, perhaps. But let's just get that out there out front uh, about the vaccines in general. When we talk about the divide, it's a difficult, a difficult thing. Uh, it's been very frustrating, I think, for those of us in public health and healthcare that are trying to do our best to get that infection and that virus to levels that are more manageable. And again, remember from the get-go, the goal of this was to keep people out of hospitals and out of morgues knowing full well that, you know, just like influenza, just like other infections, we're probably gonna be looking at an endemic situation. The only true way to eradicate a disease is to, you know, basically get an overwhelming majority of people immunized so that that virus does not have a naive population or a population of a weakened immunocompromised human system to mutate and change. Unfortunately, we didn't get that 80, 90% immunized, even as we rolled that out last February and March and we were making great strides. We kind of hit that wall, as you mentioned, around 45 to 50%. And so when you leave that many people unvaccinated or even those that might've been naturally uh, infected and developed their own immunity, it may not have been a strong enough immune response uh, so that there wasn't enough neutralizing antibodies so you, so you have these populations and pockets. And one of the comments I've been telling people is that, and it's really unfortunate, we're seeing even at the town, county, and you know state level, we're seeing little micro outbreaks, right? So you can literally move within different states and see a population that has you know, 70, 80% vaccinated doing pretty well. And you could move hundred miles to the east, for example, to a different township or a different city, and they might be in the 30 percentile. Uh, and so you have outbreaks there, higher hospitalizations, difficulty with, with healthcare professionals managing that. So it's really gotten down to even um, town to town, county to county, uh, and it's just a, a really bizarre uh, type of, of situation going on with this disease. I try to stay out of the politics around this, uh, certainly, we see some issues around different surveys and different information we see with vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And it's unfortunate because, again, in my perspective, again, a 30-year perspective, vaccination and public health care mitigation measures are all about that. Viruses, bacteria, fungal infections, whatever you're talking about, don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, if you're liberal or conservative, if you're 70 years old or 20 years old, you know, if you're white, African-American or Hispanic, they do not care. Viruses are the most diabolical microbes, in my opinion, on the planet. 
especially RNA viruses, which SARS-CoV-2 is. You know, viruses are going to virus, and this particular virus is just known for being diabolical, uh, as well as some of the others, like influenza, which is an RNA virus. So we have this kind of constant ability of this virus to mutate. And when you allow a microbe the time and the place and the population to do so, it absolutely will mutate. And we are seeing this as a real-time event, unfortunately. So we've moved into this Delta variant uh, issue, as you know, and it's the overwhelming variant of infection right now. And that's because there's a susceptible population for it to fly through. So if you can imagine if a virus has a choice to look at an immunized person that's loaded up with antibodies versus an unvaccinated person or someone who has just had a weak response to a natural infection, the virus is going to take that off-ramp and go straight for that person or that community. It is not going to go the hard way. Uh, it, that's just the way the virus works. There is no bias uh, with respect to that. So I think as we continue to move forward, uh, we are going to see SARS-CoV-2 as an endemic virus. Uh, and there's several reasons for that. It's not just because we don't have 90% immunization. So let's be clear, as we mentioned and you brought up, uh, if you have animal reservoirs, right, or even environmental reservoirs like water, bodies of water, things like that. And this virus, we believe and we've seen in the literature, it infects bats, it infects civets. Uh, we've seen it now in even domestic animals. So it's adapting, uh, even if that wasn't the original animal. And we're, we're likely going to be seeing animal reservoirs. And so when you have that occurring, uh, unless you find a way to vaccinate animals, uh, it's very difficult to eliminate the virus. So you, what you have now is an endemic virus that might become, again, might become seasonal or it might become just low level prevalence and incidence. And we've seen this historically, whether it's um, influenza, uh, whether it's rabies. In my early career, I helped e eradicate canine rabies variant from Texas, but we still deal with bat rabies and we still deal with skunk rabies here in Texas. So uh, you can't always totally eliminate something. The only true uh, viruses that we've really done a great job with elimination wise is smallpox because smallpox is only found in human host. And uh, we could do that with measles, but that's been you know, problematic because we've had some, some issues with vaccination for measles as well, um, and even polio, which we were getting close to. But it's just a difficult world when you have geopolitical things going on and wars and, and other things like that that make it difficult to get into some of those pockets of susceptible people to get vaccines into when you have, for instance, some kind of uh, political unrest or a war going on, and you can't completely get people immunized. So it's just difficult. Uh, and looking back at smallpox, I always, I always tell people that that was quite a global achievement uh, that we were able to do so, um, maybe in a time when we didn't have as much problems politically around the world where we could go in and at least make sure we were taking care of people's health and things like that. So for the topic around risk, around vaccination versus unvaccination uh, decisions, uh, one of the things I will always and I will continue to state is I am in favor of vaccination, but here is the area around that I would talk to people who are, who are worried about it. First of all, every person should discuss this with their private physician, their healthcare professional that they are comfortable talking with in regards to risk. So if you have a medical condition or you have a medical risk in which you're concerned about, uh, perhaps you are immunocompromised and and you've had a history with, with vaccines causing some issues, some different types of, of things that occur when you get vaccinated. That is a definite reason to consider not being vaccinated, right? And again, I'm not a physician, so I'm going to continue to defer that to a physician who has taken care of someone. Um, so the medical reasoning, the medical exemptions are something that I think people should definitely discuss with their physicians around that area. And then, you know, even in the religious exemptions, um, I think sometimes we need to listen to those individuals and really discuss it with them. Again, I'm going to speak from a virologist uh, and kind of my own professional experience here, not a physician, but I do think we need to listen to people 
and understand their situation and, and perhaps have a discussion to where maybe we can convince them of why it's important to get vaccinated in the sense of a public health uh, emergency or a pandemic and why that might be important. So there are some uh, data certainly that show there are some risk factors around certain populations and and you mentioned uh, myocarditis you know we have some issues around multi-inflammatory systemic issues with the younger populations that we saw early on and so those things are being watched and studied one of the things that i also like to mention is that uh, people will sometimes talk about um, this particular vaccine is only eua and we don't have enough data Again, I'm gonna leave that up to the FDA to a final approval, but I will say that we have actually, and by we, I mean the United States and others around the world, we have been studying mRNA technology for almost 20 years now, if you look at the data and the literature. And uh, even within this time period, we've probably studied more people clinically because it was um, you know, an emergency and we had the EUA and as of now, that risk is still very, very low for those types of issues, sometimes in the levels of three or four per million uh, individuals. So I still believe the risk of COVID getting the actual infection is more dangerous than that, that kind of minor, very small percentage of risk or adverse event. Each person needs to discuss this with their physician and talk about it. But I still believe that the vaccine is safe uh, over that particular data set. And, and we are watching it, right? I'll be the first to change my opinion or my scientific reasoning on that if we start seeing something you know, flare up. Uh, in all vaccination data, if you look kind of historically at it, most major risk, and I mean real risk, high risk and, and percentages that get higher occur in the first three weeks, maybe the first month. And we just haven't seen that. And so whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson here that we have in the USA that we're using, we just haven't seen that. And so I'm gonna to continue to say that I believe professionally and personally, it's important for people to get vaccinated with those caveats of medical reasoning and perhaps religious reasons as we move forward. Dr. Rodi, I wanted to get your perspective on the Delta variant. You've mentioned it a couple of times. And with vaccinations of the vast majority of the elderly and those at highest risk, we've, we've sucked out most of the vulnerable in terms of death from the population that could now be infected with the Delta variant. Of course, as you mentioned, Delta could still infect vaccinated people, but that's probably a minor concern since they're less likely to die or be hospitalized. It now seems that this really is a pandemic, as you mentioned, of the unvaccinated with this Delta variant. And the variant's especially concerning since it's so highly contagious. The R0 is higher than original strains of the virus, falling between five and nine as compared to an R0 of three for the original strain of COVID-19. And that's greater than the R0 for influenza and lower than the R0 for HIV. What implications does the Delta variant have on the current state of the pandemic? With the extremely high transmission rate of Delta, is it likely that anyone that continues to go unvaccinated will eventually become infected? And if so, what does that mean? Will we likely start seeing more younger people die as a result because most of the older people are vaccinated? And what scientific insights can you provide to us and layperson listenership about the new Delta variant and what it means in the fight against COVID-19? Sure, Daniel, thanks for that question about uh, the Delta variant. You know, I, I've been talking about this over the last six months, maybe a year now. Isn't it interesting how we've all uh, in the in the United States and the world have so much new vocabulary, right? We have we're talking about Delta variant and real time PCR and flattening the curve. It's just interesting um, how much visibility a pandemic can put on the world of virology and microbiology. So it's it's just kind of interesting to hear so many questions about this uh, in a in a good way, in a sense. So that raises that that level of awareness of outbreaks and how critical microbes can devastate you know, the population. So let's talk about the Delta variant a little bit. So we now know, as we mentioned earlier, that the Delta variant, which is a version of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, right? So we're still talking about SARS-CoV-2. 
perhaps one day we'll talk about SARS-CoV-3, right? So there has to be a massive change genomically and antigenically for us to consider uh, viruses basically recombined to create a new version of itself. So when we're talking about variants, we're kind of talking about for, for the public, I often talk about like cousins, right? So they're generally related, but they've changed enough to where they look a little different. So variants of viruses or strains of bacteria or different fungi or whatever micro we're talking about, when they change a little bit, then your body, your immune system may not recognize them as perhaps they did at the beginning. And so that's something to kind of take notice of. Uh, we see again it playing out in real time, right? So when we had this Delta variant enter the population, that means the virus mutated a little bit and we've got this new kind of new cousin, if you will. Now, let's be clear before we jump into this. Viruses mutate. It's what they do. It's no different than anything else. Viruses do this, especially RNA viruses. Sometimes when they mutate, they actually end up becoming lethal and it, and it actually kind of implodes on themselves and they, they become unviable. That's a good thing when that occurs. But sometimes they, they change and adapt so that they can continue to infect hosts that are susceptible and to kind of wreak havoc in our population. So that's kind of what happened. So we've got Delta. And as we mentioned, it's, I think it's over 90% of the infections that are occurring right now in the United States uh, and in other places around the world, it's also spreading. And it does uh, primarily affect the unvaccinated. Although we do, as we mentioned before, have some breakthrough infections in the vaccinated population, but it's overwhelmingly in the unvaccinated. And with this change, what we have happening is what we're seeing uh, in the pathology of the virus. So let's talk about the pathology. It is changing a bit. And you've probably seen some of this popping up in different stories and perhaps any literature you're reading that we're seeing more young people uh, infected with it. Now, this could be a number of factors. It could be because young people aren't vaccinated. Uh, and we certainly know that younger people aren't as vaccinated, especially those under 12, because they can't be right now without a FDA approval or even an EUA for that level of age. Uh, and it might be that the virus is also just adapting to that population. As you mentioned, Daniel, the elderly are much better protected this time around, and that's a great thing. So we're not seeing quite as much problem with that. Uh, we did see this week, I think that was this week, maybe uh, earlier, that uh, the U.S. is moving to a recommendation for a third shot or a booster uh, for immunocompromised individuals. And you can go to um, different sources uh, to see those, those actual individuals. There's particular individuals that they're kind of uh, targeting, including people who are on cancer chemotherapy drugs, organ transplant, immunosuppressant drugs, and I don't have them all in my brain right now, but there are specific sets of patients and people that they're looking at. I also saw today uh, that it looks like we may be moving, and again, this isn't final at the moment, but we may be moving to a booster shot for the general population post eight to nine months. Now that's that's just some sources I've been looking at and it has not been announced as far as I know, unless it's happened during our taping. So we'll see, again, not surprising to me, generally RNA viruses change enough to where you rarely have a vaccine that lasts, for example, 10 years or a lifetime. You often need boosters or reimmunization after a year or 18 months or two years or something like that. So I'm not surprised that we may all be looking at a booster shot in the coming six months or something like that. So the Delta variant does seem to be um, moving through these populations that are susceptible. The data also shows us right now that Delta is about two to one more transmissible. So it does appear to be more transmissible as far as that R naught you mentioned. And again, for your audience, if you don't know what an R naught is, that is basically a root reproduction factor that means, um, say I have the infection, if I'm able to infect five other people, then the r naught would be five. So just kind of a simple explanation. So it, it's a number, the r naught's a number that means how many people an infected person can actually infect around them. The higher the number, 
the more transmissible it is. The lower number, which is a good thing, means you can't infect as many people. And again, there's a lot of factors uh, to talk about this, uh, again, for your audience if they're not aware. For example, some people will remember the Ebola virus uh, incident back in 2014. And so when, when it showed up in uh, the United States, uh, in Dallas, in fact, here in Texas and some other places, and people often talk about that, how worried we were, you know, the, the nation was really concerned and, and, and they should be because Ebola has a very high death rate up in the 70, 80, 90%. But one of the things I often mention to people when you compare is Ebola is transmitted through a bloodborne type of transmission, whereas SARS-CoV-2 is straight up aerosolization respiratory route, totally different. Um, and so in many ways, even though something like Ebola is terrifying and scary, it actually is harder to transmit, right? So you have a lower R naught. But when you look at something that is respiratory spread, what we've all in the world of public health and virology have always worried about is a deadly virus that can be spread through the transmission of respiratory or aerosolization, because then it makes it very difficult to control and to try to you know, mitigate that. And, and here we are, right? So we have SARS-CoV-2, Thankfully, the mortality rate doesn't appear to be, you know, 90%, but it certainly has been high in the immunocompromised. So it's problematic when you have that type of transmission rate. So that Delta variant seems to be more transmissible than the original strains were, the original variants. We also see through uh, early uh, studies from this variant that it appears to have, a, I'm not going to say appear, it does, according to some of the research that's been published, a higher tighter, in other words, a higher amount of virus in a human being who's infected. And you can imagine that's a problem if you have more virus in an individual. And it also appear, it also shows that it's staying longer. So there's a longer longevity uh, in a human being. So maybe instead of three or four days, it might be five to seven. And so more opportunity to be transmitted from that individual. So those types of factors play into its transmissibility especially in a uh, susceptible population that's not vaccinated. Uh, so we are worried as we kind of come back together this fall for, for school, sporting has come back to um, you know, full participation in the arenas. Uh, music venues are coming back, restaurants are coming back. These are all things that we know we want back. Uh, I love it as much as the next person. Uh, but it is something to keep in mind as you're out there circulating in these venues to be careful, especially if you are unvaccinated, uh, because you may have a higher rate of infection from this variant than we had even last fall. Well, Dr. Rohde, I'm really enjoying our conversation today, and it's just a wonderful opportunity to discuss the science of COVID-19 with an expert like yourself. And, uh, you know, as we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to ask you about the the future of COVID-19. I mean, you referenced earlier that we're likely uh, entering into an endemic phase um, in the future. And so this is unlike the scenario that you, you mentioned earlier about how we face smallpox, you know, and we um, had a highly effective global vaccination effort and completely eradicated the virus. I mean, that's definitely not going to happen here. I mean, just given the political nature of the pandemic and the misinformation out there on the vaccines, the polarization. It just seems like we want, are not going to have the global solidarity and that window is probably closed at this point anyway. But as we move past this idealized scenario of eradication, I mean, we, we still have opportunity to be optimistic about SARS-CoV-2 becoming endemic. And last week I was reading a, an article from Scott Gottlieb, an interview he was doing actually. And he was, he, he said that you know, we're transitioning from this being a pandemic to more of an endemic virus. And, you know, Scott Gottlieb, for those of you that don't know, he was the former head of the FDA. So I, I'm just thinking, you know, uh, for our, uh, as we, you know, think about the future of this pandemic, you know, is this likely going to be um, a virus that no longer causes severe disease in the absence of a vaccine like the common cold and does that hold the promise for us maybe as a society to move on and learn how to live with the virus as a normal part of our lives? 
you know, I just wanted to see what you thought about once we get past this current surge of cases with the Delta variant, do you think that we are entering into this endemic phase of the pandemic and hopefully maybe can live our lives normally again? Yeah, thanks for that question, Eric. That's a great question to kind of, and I do appreciate the reference to um, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. I follow him as well. Uh, for your audience, you know, I would highly recommend uh, following him as well as Dr. Tom Frieden, former director of CDC. Uh, Dr. Peter Hotez right here in Texas is another wonderful resource to follow. Again, trying to follow good science communicators and science and, and reduce the misinformation out there. The disinformation, as you know, is really another pandemic uh, around the world, unfortunately. So I'll start by saying, God, I hope so, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and I do think we are transitioning. I think that's a good word. Uh, for it. And I'm going to I'm going to put the caveat here, at least in the United States, um, because we've been very fortunate, you know, to have the vaccine available, even though we're still challenged with pockets of people that are are, you know, not getting vaccinated. We are seeing in some areas, again, this you can break this out state by state, as we mentioned, or county by county. Some areas are 70, 80, 90 percent vaccinated. Other areas are 20, 30, 40. But I do think as we move into another year, and something I mentioned early on in this pandemic, historically, unchecked pandemics typically are about a three-year cycle, because what happens is it takes that many times to kind of go through waves to unfortunately hit those who are unvaccinated or who haven't mounted an immune response from a vaccine. So I do think as the Delta variant kind of burns through the population uh, this coming fall and winter, uh, that we're going to have, you know, whether or not you like it or not, we're going to have a higher number of naturally immunized individuals. Hopefully our vaccination numbers will continue to climb. We did see some days this week reach a million vaccines again. Uh, so I think Delta has put, you know, a priority for some people that were on the fence to get vaccinated. And I do think as we move into 2022 that we're going to see uh, hopefully a more endemic type of situation where we're going to have lower and lower levels of mortality. Uh, I'm optimistic that we'll enter that phase eventually. It may not happen today or next month, but I do think we're headed that way in the next year or so as we move into the third year. And, and I, I, I do think we'll get there. And I think, you know, some of the lessons I hope that we've learned as we move through this is that regardless of where you sit, uh, regardless of your politics, and, and what your understanding may be of all the core scientific information, we're very fortunate and very blessed that we had the technology to create mRNA vaccines. Uh, no other time in history have we been able to adapt to a virus in real time. This is a significant event historically in our time. I think we will look back on this, Eric and Daniel, 20, 30, 50 years from now, and, and be thankful that we had this type of technology. Because moving forward, you know, between the warp speed initiative to get us the vaccine, and I give full credit to the former administration of pushing that and making that happen, cutting out some of the bureaucracy, but not the safety, the safety still there, but just kind of cutting down some of the, the red tape to get processes done quicker, get EUAs in, in place. And to have a vaccine technology that we can now use in our arsenal of public health and healthcare that we might be able to, to curtail other future uh, microbes that are dangerous. As you know, and, and as a virologist and microbiologist, this isn't the only thing we're worried about. I mean, there are things like African swine fever, and we're always worried about influenza and you know, Ebola is still out there and other respiratory agents and there's antimicrobial resistant bacteria that we have fewer and fewer antibiotics for. These are things that keep us up at night when everybody else isn't uh, worried after this particular pandemic winds down. There are other things to be concerned about. And with that type of technology and what I will continue to, to put a light on and that is for ongoing support for public health funding and professional development for future professions, including medical laboratory scientists and public health professionals and physicians and all the others. Remember, it takes years to create these types of professions that are capable and ready to go. And public health funding has fell off in the last 20 years, and many of us have been begging for it. 
uh, and this is a bit of a tangent, but it, it's just part of it. It's important because we need to look at public health. And I'm not the only person that says this as part of our Department of Defense. It is absolutely imperative that we fund public health uh, in a way that we can prepare for these types of pandemics. These agents have killed more people than all the wars put together in the past 50 years or so, if not 100 years. They're way more adaptable, they're diabolical, and we need to have you know, an arsenal of vaccines and, and therapeutic drugs and mitigation measures and, and lessons learned. And so I hope even as we transition, um, Eric and Daniel, as we move into maybe a more time of less COVID infections and less mortality, that none of us forget the important lesson that this particular virus has shown us. Um, and you know, even HIV should have been a wake-up call, but we continue to need to learn this lesson that, that this will happen again, whether it's 10 years from now or a year from now or 50 years from now, we will need to support ways to adapt quickly to them. Dr. Rodney Rohde, uh, thank you so much for bringing your sage advice and scientific understanding to our audience. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, you know, having this conversation with you today and keep up the great work in, in taking a leadership role and getting a public awareness around COVID-19. And uh, please tell all my uh, former colleagues at Texas State when you see them, uh, I say hello. But, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been great having this discussion, and I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Eric and Daniel. As you know, uh, I always love to talk about our, our uh, mutual admiration for Texas State University. We're cranking out amazing healthcare professionals and others around campus. So thank you for the time. Thank you for this important podcast. And I look forward to any questions, other things that your audience may have. Feel free to follow me and give me a shout. I can be found on Twitter at Rodney Rohde and within our own major here at Texas State which is at TXState underscore CLS. I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook, both personally and professionally. Feel free to follow me, and I'm always happy to try to uh, have a conversation to educate anyone within this realm of infectious disease and otherwise. 